Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Seven Seas of History. We are at uh, the Seventh Sea, Consummation, Part Two. Uh, we didn't finish last week, and by the way, we're live streaming today. Um, we didn't we didn't finish the Seventh Sea last time. I'm not totally sure we're going to finish this time. There's just a lot of material, and uh, if we don't. I believe uh, next Sunday I'll be up again, right, Pastor Scott? Okay, good. <clears throat> so we can uh, wrap up the end of this uh, sea, the seven seas, next time if we don't finish today. So there's just a lot of material. To get started, just a reminder, what we've been looking at is God's intervention in world history from the beginning of time, from in the creation, when God created the universe and all there is, and Adam and Eve and the human race, and then the intervention of sin by the uh, sin of Adam, the intervention of sin, the intrusion of sin into the human race, which corrupted everything, not just the people, but the, the entire planet, really the entire universe. has been corrupted by the effects of sin, and we saw the Effects of sin grow every step along the way as we looked at the seven seas and progressed all the way up to where we are today. <clears throat> this emphasizes the time of judgment, the final judgment. It, it, it's based on Hebrews 9.27, which tells us it's appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. So we know that judgment is something that follows death unless you are trusting in Christ. We're trusting in His death. We're trusting in His judgment on the cross on behalf of our sins, for the sins we committed and the penalty which we rightly deserve. But it's a true statement, and uh, this emphasizes the judgment, but there's a lot more in the consummation than judgment. There's a lot of judgment involved in the consummation and the preparation of that, but <clears throat> God's redemptive plan has a goal of separating good from evil. In the beginning, there was no evil in our world. And people want to say, well, death is part of life and kind of gain some reassurance from that. But the truth is, death was not part of life to start with. It, it's, it's an enemy. It, in fact, the Bible says it's the last enemy that's going to be conquered. So we had what we call a normal world up until the sin of Adam. And then with the sin of Adam came the corruption of all there is and God's plan to eliminate sin from the, uh, from the cosmos. And after that, good is separated from evil. We see evil permanently confined forever and good continuing on into time immemorial. So we looked at, we looked at this uh, graphic we've seen before that there were covenants. And God, God came and, and announced covenants to particular people throughout history, making promises about redemption. And um, He came to Noah. There was the Noahic covenant we studied. We, we studied the Abrahamic covenant, which involved land, a nation, and a blessing. And then the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the New Covenant, these are the primary covenants that we studied. And we found out that Christ is the ultimate fulfiller of all those covenants. He's the one who fulfills those covenants. 
those covenant promises. He came to fulfill, but the fullness of the covenant promises really comes with the second coming of Christ. It comes with his return because he came the first time to die for our sins and the second time to really bring about the blessings of fulfillment. The uh, premillennial and pre-tribulational timeline is one that uh, we believe fits the Bible narrative and for a lot of reasons it just the the statements in the Old Testament fall into place very nicely with the uh, position of these where we live in the church age. We live between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ and anticipate the return of Christ in the form of, uh, first of all, the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church. And uh, we talked about that last time. I want to pick up there where we <coughs> left off. During the next seven years that exist after the rapture, there's going to be a great tribulation ongoing in the world. And then the second coming of Christ itself, where Christ comes to earth. And then the start of the millennium, the thousand years of peace on the earth, the, the period that people long for, that people talk about and wish we had already. After that, then, there is a final judgment. That final judgment is the judgment of the unrighteous, what we call the great white throne. And so the resurrection of the righteous occur at the rapture of the church, the unrighteous over a thousand years later at the final judgment. And then the eternal reign of Christ in what we call the eternal state. The eternal state. It's quite a picture. If you think about this, we're looking ahead into the next dispensation and even the one after that. We're looking at the millennium that's future and then we're looking beyond even that to the, to the eternal state. If you think about it, uh, it wasn't that obvious in times past what was the next uh, dispensation. In other words, when God came to Noah and found grace, uh, when Noah found grace with God, it, it wasn't really clear exactly what this world was going, what was going to happen in the next dispensation. It just unfolded. But now that Christ has come and the New Testament has been completed and the canon of Scripture has all been written, we have, the, we have the prophetic record of the Bible telling us a lot about the future. So we have information now, uh, the information God wanted us to have about that. So let's take a quick look at the millennium. What is the millennium before we get back into the timeline? The millennium is a thousand years of righteousness, social justice, world peace, and prosperity. Folks, what is it that the world yearns for? Isn't it all these things? The problem is they don't, they don't want to get rid of their sin. They, the, the, the unbelieving world loves their sin. They want it on their terms and keep their sin. But a, a world like this can't be built with sinful people. And so it has to be done this particular way. Uh, the millennium begins with after the second coming of Christ Hebrews, I quoted Hebrews 9.27, the very next verse, um, Hebrews 9.28 says that uh, Christ came the first time to bear the sins of many, but will appear a second time without reference to sin. He'll appear a second time without reference to sin. He's not coming back as a suffering servant. He's coming back as a reigning king and he will rule 
during the millennium. Um, the Probably the best illustration of this is when Jesus was entering into his ministry early on, you remember the time in Luke 4 when he went up to the mountain, was tempted by Satan, and uh, he passed the temptation, of course, and he, uh, then he came and started his ministry and came back to his hometown in Nazareth. And he went to the synagogue and they uh, offered him to uh, the opportunity to say a few words. And it says this, he began teaching in the synagogues and uh, the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He opened the book and found in the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the book right there and sat down, and what did he say? You probably remember this, right? He said, today this has been fulfilled, you know, right here, right here and now. <laughs> you would think they would be happy about that. No, they were very unhappy. <laughs> they, 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 they thought he was actually claiming to be the Messiah, and, they, and this is exactly what he was claiming to be, but he was reading from Isaiah 61 and he stopped in the middle of a sentence. He stopped in the middle of a sentence. We can go back and look at the rest of that, which involves the second coming. Isaiah 61, verse 2, and it's the second half of verse 2. And I'll pick it up right there to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then the next phrase, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They'll raise the former devastations and so forth. And he goes on to talk about the prosperity that will follow in the millennium. But you see, he didn't quote that. He didn't quote that in Nazareth when he was uh, reading this passage. He, he, and he didn't claim to fulfill that part. So it seems obvious from looking at the context and from many other passages that this is part of the second coming. This is the content of it. The millennium also follows at the end of the Great Tribulation. And it closes the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles come to an end with the second coming of Christ. When Israel will emerge, emerge as the world superpower. Uh, Luke 21, 24, Jesus talks about the uh, times of the Gentiles will come to an end. There's a um, graphic on the next slide, but... I've also given it to you in the handouts as a uh, on the back sheet. It's a little easier to read back there. It's um, it's enlarged by a uh, person called Larkin. Larkin is uh, famous for these charts, and um, this kind of gives you a visual depiction of that timeline. But you look down at the bottom. You see the the man uh, from Daniel. This is from Daniel chapter two. Remember the the. Uh, the image that uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw, the head of gold, and he had gold, uh, then, then, he, uh, then he had arms and a breast of silver. 
and then there was bronze, and then there were feet of clay, and so forth. And you remember what happened? Out of nowhere appeared a stone that broke the, the feet into pieces and crushed the whole thing, and it came down like a house of cards. That's an image of the times of the Gentiles. The, Israel began to be ruled while they were in captivity, and starting in 586 B.C., and they've been in captivity ever since then, and even today are continuing under under uh, the times of the Gentiles to be regulated, really, by the United Nations. Um, they really have no... You look at the boundaries of their country, it's all been carved up. They don't have a lot of control. But with a second coming, that's going to change. That's going to change. They will have their Messiah, their King, and this will this will all change at that point. Some key passages to think about... Uh, as we ponder what the millennium is. And there's so many of them, we couldn't possibly read them all, but we can look at a few here in Isaiah 2, uh, starting with verse 2, Isaiah 2, 2. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the Lord, the house of the Lord, will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he will judge between the nations and render decisions for many peoples. They will hammer their, plow, their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Won't that be great? Wow, we wish we had that today, don't we? And everybody wants world peace. This is exactly what he's going to bring. Um, the passage in Isaiah 65, let's start at verse um, 21. They'll build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit People aren't going to steal from you. <laughs> Won't that be nice? <laughs> they will not plant and another eat. As for the lifetime, a tree will be the days of my people and my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain nor will their children for calam calamity. They were, they, for they are the offspring of those blessed of the Lord, blessed by the Lord, and their descendants with them, it will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. <clears throat> the dust will be the serpent's food. They will, no, they will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Another great place to ponder what's coming. First um, Corinthians 15. Each in his order, Christ the first fruits. Those who are those who are Christ's at his coming. Then the end. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, who has when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. So it talks about those who are coming with him, and that'd be his, his saints, the resurrected ones. We talked about this last time. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be abolished is death. So it's 
to systematic removal of all the enemies of righteousness and the conquest of sin. Uh, folks, this is nothing but good news, is it not? I mean, really, there's no other way to see this. Um, I'll leave the chart for you to study. Uh, it's just one man's concept. It's, he leaves out a number of things. We can't possibly put all of the scripture into um, a chart like this, but it's something to think about. The way this starts is with the rapture, and that's the next great event in world history that starts the process. And right now, uh, that's, that's the next event on the horizon, <clears throat> is the rapture. And we read from 1 Corinthians 15 last time, that passage talks about it, but here we go with the one of the most important passages, 1 Thessalonians 4, 14-17. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring those will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. There again, there's a reference to you and me in the church from time immemorial, from time past. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Again, fallen asleep. That's, that's the way we describe the saints who have died, Christians who have died in the Lord. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain, there will be some alive and remain. And we all, I think, yearn to be in that generation. But whoever they are, though those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, this is an awesome and almost unbelievable uh, description of something very miraculous that's going to happen. It's, we interpret this literally. Uh, in times past, the church liked to allegorize things and, and try to make an allegory of it, but we're reading it literally and seeing it literally. And I've come across those uh, who go to other types of churches where they allegorize the scriptures and they'll say, well, if you can show me the word rapture in the Bible, well, I'll believe it, but not until. <laughs> well, here we have a word caught up in verse 17. Do you see that? That's the Greek word harpazo. And it, you know what it means? It means to seize, to snatch up, to grab, to, to rapture. And... There were actually theologians, English theologians in the 1700s uh, using the word rapture to translate the word harpazo. So um, when I finally got to seminary late in life and was taking Greek, I asked the professor, isn't uh, rapture a reasonable translation, meaning of this word harpazo? He said, exactly. That word raptures, in fact, is right there in that word. It, it could easily say we will be raptured together with them in the clouds. So keep that in mind, brothers and sisters, that uh, we don't want to be bamboozled by those who, <clears throat> who don't believe in the rapture. Um, it, it's right there. It's, it's in plain view. MacArthur, John MacArthur, says this about this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4. 
The primary purpose of this passage is, to te- is, is not to teach a scheme of prophecy, but rather to provide encouragement uh, to, those Christians, uh, to those Christians whose loved ones have died. The comfort here is based on the following. Number one, the dead will be resurrected and will participate in the Lord's coming for His own. Okay? Number two, when Christ comes, the living will be reunited forever with their loved ones. And number three, they will all be with the Lord forever. That, that's the plain understanding of this passage and it is designed to provide comfort. By the way, did you ever wonder why Daniel, the book of Daniel, isn't listed with the prophetic books of the Old Testament? It's not listed in It's certainly a prophetic book, but it's, it's uh, listed with the writings because it's designed to provide comfort. You see, they were the people in Israel were in exile at the time it was written, and it was designed to provide comfort. That that prophecy, this prophetic word concerning the Lord's return, is designed that way to provide comfort. And so we have uh, people also making this claim, and I've been around these people, and they'll say, "Well, uh, it was this whole idea about the pre-millennial, pre-tribulation rapture was invented in the 1800s." Now you're bringing something brand new into the Bible that didn't exist before. Well, that's not true either. If you go back and read the early apostolic uh, church fathers, going all the way back to the first and second century, people like um, uh, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, first and second century, the shepherd of Hermas, uh, Ephraim the Syrian, a lot of those guys, they talk about the imminent return of Christ, the and and you can read what they've written. You can go online and, and see these things. I, so I'll leave that up to you. We could spend a lot of time on this. but And it is an, an interesting uh, study. But what happened about that time in church history is that we had church fathers like Origen and even, uh, even um, Augustine, the, fam- the famous Augustine, who came along and started allegorizing Scripture and using allegory. And they sort of uh, left all this in an allegorical framework for the people who followed them. And this became the heritage of the Roman Catholic Church. And from that period on up until the Protestant Reformation, there was no one around to argue, really, with the Roman Catholic interpretation. And they, the Roman Catholic Church has an amillennial view. They don't even teach the millennium. Uh, again, that, that concept that when you die, you just go to heaven, sit on a cloud, and play a harp, and, and so forth. There's, there's, no, there's no bodily resurrection. But the Protestant Reformation came along in the early 1500s and resurrected. People started reading their Bibles literally again, and they started to even have the Bible. Because at, at, at about that time, Gutenberg invented the printing press and then the Bibles started to proliferate. And people would read their Bibles literally and it began to emerge in some of these early uh, British, uh, English theologians began to talk about the rapture. And they used the word rapture. With some of these guys here, Doggeridge, Gill, McKnight, and uh, then you see... Uh, John Nelson Darby in there. Darby was just a, a lawyer. He was a lawyer in uh, England and uh, just picked up his Bible and started to read it literally. 
it proves that you don't have to be a gifted and talented and highly educated theologian. If you believe what you're reading in the Bible and the plain meaning of it, it can speak to you. It's what we call the perspicuity of Scripture, that God, God can speak to you through His Word. And it's exactly what happened with Darby. And Darby started writing about it, and uh, the premillennial, pre-tribulational view came back in a very powerful way into the mainstream of Christianity. And uh, so this is why people want to attribute um, you know, this view to him, but he's not the author of it. And the church had this view from the beginning. It's just that we got swamped in allegory. And again, it's another warning to us to stay away from allegory, isn't it? We want to keep reading the Bible literally where, where we can. Recognizing that it uses allegorical language here and there, but that rapture is clearly taught. Uh, you, you, you just read that passage. There's no other way to understand it than, uh, than what we've read. And then the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation which follows. You can see it on that chart again if you want to look at the chart, but it's a time of unprecedented uh, tragedy. But the church doesn't experience that tribulation. Uh, there are many passages that explain that, but Revelation 3.10 is a good one. <clears throat> because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. There's that word, hirazo. Uh, it means to test, meaning you, you may fail. You may fail. It's uncertain. It's not the word we looked at last time. Dakamazo is, is the word used in the judgment seat of Christ. It's the word used for our evaluation, the evaluation of the Christian. So this is why we can confidently say our judgment took place at the cross. But we do have a period of evaluation that will take place in this, during this time, during the Great Tribulation, and that will take place in heaven. Because at the rapture, we're taken to be with Christ. And it says we will always remain with Him. We'll always be with Him from that time forward. So what happens, of course, on the earth is, is an ugly sight. And I don't want to get into the details of it today because really that's, that's a good study to do, the book of Revelation. And there are other Old Testament prophecies that talk about that as well. But... You're familiar and have heard about the, uh, the, the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments. Uh, to start out with, this, the seal judgments, uh, one-third of the earth, trees, and grass are burned up. Uh, sea creatures die. The ships are destroyed. The waters are polluted. Uh, sun, moon, and stars are darkened and so forth. There are four demons that are released to kill one-third of humanity. It's an ugly sight. It's a terrible thing. And then we get on to the bold judgments in the second half, which is even the worst part. We could almost divide into two halves, the first and second part, but the second half we would call the Great Tribulation, where there's painful sores, there's the sea becomes blood and everything in it dies. Rivers are turned to blood. The sun scorches people with fire and heat. Um, it's, it's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing to contemplate. 
and many people will die. In fact, so many that Jesus said of that time, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. There'll still be some people living. There'll be people coming to Christ even in the midst of that. Even in the midst of that turmoil. But we will be in heaven. We will be in heaven with Christ during the time, during that time. The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is talked about at length in the Old Testament. So um, we can't deal with all these passages, but um, we could uh, we could see it though as a time of uh, end time divine judgments, and uh, it's it's a terrible time. Uh, again, in parallel with, with what we're seeing here during the Great Tribulation, um, in uh, Isaiah two, first Second uh, Peter, Second Peter uh, two, verse three, Second <coughs> Peter three, verse ten. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away and the roar of elements will be destroyed, and intent, with intense heat the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking and hastening for the day of the day of God, because that which because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with intense heat according to his promise. We're looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. First uh, Thessalonians 5, you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child. They will not escape, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the darkness. So let us not sleep as others do, but be alert and so forth. In other words, we're not going through that we're not going through that period, folks, but it is a time of, of difficulty, difficulty in just surviving even in the world. Isaiah describes it really well. I think Isaiah 24 kind of gives us a good uh, viewpoint about what really is happening in the world. The earth is broken asunder. The earth is split through, the earth is drunken violently, is shaken violently. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard, and it totters like a shaft. For its transgression is heavy upon it, it will fall never to rise again, so it will be that it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high, and the kings of the earth on earth, and they will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon. They'll be confined in prison after many days. They'll be punished. Then the sun, uh, then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. So there you have it. This is really the essence of what is happening, of what is going on in the day of the Lord. Judgment of the nations. Remember that. I, I probably don't really... We need to read the whole passage, but the judgment of the nations when Christ gathers the nations together and judges the sheep and the goats. Remember that passage in Matthew 25? And the unrighteous remnant 
that are left over that survive the millennium, those are forbidden to enter the millennium. They can't go. They're not allowed to enter the millennium. But the righteous remnant, the sheep, are spared in order to repopulate the earth during the millennium. So during the millennium, it's like we're back almost to ground zero where just a small group of people, like in the days of Noah, this is why Jesus compared his second coming to the days of Noah. Back then, there were just a few people on the earth to repopulate the earth. And here we have the righteous remnant uh, moving forward as the millennium progresses. Unfortunately, they're going to have children, and these children are, again, they've got the sin nature, they've got the same makeup that we do, they're going to be sinners, they still have to, to become righteous, they need to repent of their sin and turn to Christ just as we have. Um, but they'll still experience all the benefits of living in the millennium. Now boy, I, I'm glad I lived in the, live in the church age and not the age before that, but it would have been great to be born in the millennium, wouldn't it? <laughs> uh, based on what we've read. And the judicial matters that go on, by the way, we're going to have saints involved here, the, you and I, redeemed people, people who have gone through the, the second resurrection, the resurrection. Uh, among these people, as judges, uh, administering uh, justice on the earth. Look at Matthew 19. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you have, who have followed me, he's talking to his disciples, you know, you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, and that word is the born again, when, when, the, when the world is, when, I'm, when the earth is being born again, the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, and you shall sit on the twelve, you shall sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Really? Really? <laughs> or what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 <clears throat> Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? No, I didn't know that. Really? If the world is to be judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? And my response to Paul is, no, I didn't know that. I'm glad you put it in writing, though. <laughs> now we know. We know that this, this, we have a judicial and administrative role to play under the Lordship of Christ during the millennium. So... It serves a very needed purpose during the millennium to maintain that justice. And then the judgment of the nations. Uh, there's a, after that, there is a final revolt. At the end of the millennium, you'd think it would end in happiness, but folks, every, every dispensation throughout time has ended in failure, hasn't it? It's ended in disappointment. You think about it, all the ones we studied, and this one is no exception. The millennium will end in disappointment because Satan will be released from his from the pit where he'll be bound. He'll be bound throughout the millennium, so he won't be causing any problems during the millennium. But it says this in Revelation twenty 
when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. He'll come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. They will come upon the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And then fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false, false prophet are also, and there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, we're getting somewhere, aren't we? <laughs> now, there is final judgment on Satan. The great white throne judgment comes. I saw a great white throne, him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. No place was found for them. I saw the, the great, the, the, the dead, the great and small standing before the throne. Books were opened, another book was opened, the book of life, and the dead were judged from the books which were written in the books, the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Well, I'd, I'd hate to be judged for my deeds. Christ was judged for my deeds, but I'd hate to be the one being judged for my deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. All this, all these locations in this universe were giving up the dead to stand before the great white throne. And uh, they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Terrible time. Terrible time. It's the ultimate judgment, is it not? It's the ultimate judgment. So what do we learn from the millennium? And I think we'll, we'll we'd have to stop at this point. I'd like to go on, but what do we learn from the millennium? First of all, it is a perfect world if you think about it. The millennium, it's a, it's a whole lot better than the world we live in. But even that doesn't solve humanity's basic problems, which which, which is our what is our problem? It's sin, isn't it? It's the thing that, it's that four-letter word we talked about, sin, that people don't want to admit to. They don't like the bad news, but the gospel brings good news. So if you refuse to hear the bad news, you'll miss the good news. Even Satan, when Satan is taken away, humans are still sinful. They have a sinful heart. We need the redemption of Christ. We need the Lord to forgive us and give us a new heart. Uh, also, the sin nature, <clears throat> which everyone is born with, detests the righteousness of God and is ultimately self-destructive. So these people who take part in this rebellion, who have lived through the millennium, have a dark heart. They're willing to follow Satan. You know, it's ultimately they detest the righteousness of God, which is sad. And finally, human self-determination. It may provide temporary empowerment to overcome some sins, but only God's power can change the sin nature. We talked about this last time, the Ezekiel's statement that he'll give us uh, a new heart, the new covenant. Remember the promise of the new covenant? That he'll give us a new heart. This is the redemption that Christ brings with being born again. This is the redemptive work of Christ in our lives. It's supernatural. It's powerful. And uh, John 16, 8, and Romans 5. Romans 5 talks about um, 
the sin nature, that Christ died for our sin nature. He died for our sins, but He died for our sin nature too. So, Folks, the, what's left now is off the chart. <laughs> this chart you have, it, it doesn't include the eternal state. But we're up to that point and we're out of time. So what we'll do is come back next time and talk about the eternal state. There's, there's two, two chapters primarily in the Bible and there's some other pas passages here and there. It's, it's worth looking into because here's the reason. Everything we've talked about here is on a timeline. <clears throat> the creation began and it, it proceeds all the way through the, our time and then into the millennium, that thousand year period. What comes after that? The eternal state. And uh, it's it's an exciting study, and so I want to do I want to do justice to that uh, topic. So we'll come back and look at next time at an exciting point in the future when we can all look forward to it. But let's think about it in this way. I put a scripture up here, and I hope this is. I hope this motivates you too, but it motivates me. Second Peter 3. According to His promise, we're looking for what? A chance to go to heaven? We're looking forward to the millennium? No. We're looking forward to that new heaven and new earth, right? That eternal state in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in, by Him in peace, spotless, and blameless. So that's the challenge right now for us we were looking forward to that time. So, shall we pray? Lord, thank you for the plans that you have for this world and for us, for the exciting uh, period that follows after, even after the millennium, but the millennium itself, which will be wonderful, but the period which comes after that. We pray you'd be helping us to meditate on these truths and to live by them and to look forward to that time. In Christ's name we pray, amen.